what the agenda was of the Secret Service during that time and, and, and evidence that they were working in collusion with a, a cabal, um, a sort of a private cabal representing interests of would-be competitors. That was Dr. Douglas Jackson. He's the founder of eGold and also a board-certified oncologist and an entrepreneur who's currently working on the next-gen successor to eGold. Now, a lot of Bitcoiners have heard about eGold, but not too many actually know the inside story. And we're going to cover everything from his past and what led up to him getting this idea to what is actually happening now, all the way through the trial, everything. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dustin. It's a real pleasure. And I mean, we're going to be uh, talking uh, about eGold, and you know, really the story of you know everything that went on is is a real fascinating, fascinating one, and really integral to the you know the history of of Bitcoin and kind of the context of the you know the world surrounding it at its at its creation. Um, as well as just the the history of alternative currencies in general, but really before we delve into that story, I would really like to hear about y- your own story. Um, you know how do you, how your ideology ideologies and and thinking had developed over the years. You know what inspired you to do this, um, since it really kind of provides like a, a real good you know context for what what followed. Well, that really takes me down memory lane because um, one of the problems is that the origins of this, this this was quite a long time ago. Um, And so I I have relatively faint recollection of the early years. But um, what I can say is that probably the very beginning of all this was back in 1994. There was a an article uh, by Thomas Sowell, I think in Forbes on the 50th anniversary of Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And the article was so compelling, so interesting, that I I set out to find a copy of the book, which wasn't at Barnes and Noble. And what I ended up doing was uh, I found found it at a, a, a sort of a libertarian bookstore in San Francisco called Laissez Faire Books. So um, I ordered that book. They also sent along their sort of catalog of titles. And I suppose what happened was I I, I sort of had a, a temporary fascination with libertarian notions, started to read some of the canon of libertarian thought. Um, but before long, like it, it, it struck me right around that time, it, it didn't take long to realize that, that money seemed to be a really critical focus of the, the sort of balance between state and individual. Um, but there was other events that were occurring at the time too. Now, in the meanwhile, this was when I was still uh, practicing medicine. I, I'd, I'd gone into private practice in 1992, was really enjoying rapid growth in the practice, and that was my full-time job. It never had any intention that I would do some other type of a career. But then events occurred in 1996 that made me feel like 
um, a sort of a duty to try to accomplish something in terms of, of money and payments. The main thing that happened that year, uh, which I thought was an apocal type of change, this was when the the internet was first becoming like a commercially viable phenomenon. Like uh, this was about the year that eBay came out. I think Amazon started to appear around this time. And the thing that really transformed the, the internet into a commercial platform was when, uh, you know, there, there was the possibility of having secure browsers. Like at that moment, you, you had people around the world, you know, had gained access to market their goods and their services to a potentially global audience. But the problem was there wasn't any really good way of being paid. Um, the thing that happened in 1996 that was so striking, of course, was, was when Netscape had come out with, uh, I think it was version two of, 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 of SSL. So it was now possible to have a secure browser. It struck me at the time that this was the third sort of major element that for the first time in history would enable somebody to offer uh, on a private basis, a monetary and payment system that was completely external to the banking system. Um, and the, like, because the, the other two ingredients have been around for a while, like to do something like that, you have to have, of course, massive computation ability so that you don't have an army of scribes setting their updating ledgers. But you also have to have considerable uh, data storage. Um, both of those things have become possible with the advent of low-cost computing. Um, but the missing thing was that communications piece, to be able to securely communicate payment instructions, payment notifications, um, and, and to be able to send reports and, and things like balances and so forth. So when that became possible, it struck me that like, this is a, this is a whole new thing. Um, and so in a sense, what I had set out to do, I mean, there was a twofold side to the sort of mission. One was a, was very much a financial inclusion type thing that since the only payment mechanism essentially at the time was credit cards, most sellers of goods um, really didn't have the ability to access that. They didn't have established credit. Some of them didn't even have bank accounts. Um, merchant credit card accounts were, were um, re required established credit and they were also quite expensive. Um, so I was concerned about that. So from the payment standpoint, what I wanted to do was to make it possible for anybody in the world that had internet access to receive payments online that would settle immediately with finality at very, very low cost. Now to do the payments aspect though, there was also a monetary side, but this fit in with all the sort of uh, little libertarian infatuation that I had at the time in that I felt like, A, I had the need for some sort of a medium of exchange, which would be the thing that conveyed value from payer to recipient. But B, I felt like governments uh, we're not doing an especially good job of stewards of this really vital economic thing, this, this thing that's almost a, that, that many people regard as a public good, which is, is some sort of money. So my concern with money was that I, I felt like the history for the last few hundred years of, 
of credit cycles that would often end up leading to real world disruptions and in some cases wars, the much of that stemmed from the discretionary nature of money. So it struck me that it would be possible for a private entity who's capable of being bound by contract to do something on a contractual basis uh, that would be much more reliable. Um, but then the other need that I had was if I'm gonna offer a medium of exchange, I wanted to offer the same sort of freedom from default risk as government money. In other words, the same sort of freedom from default risk if you had a, like if you had an account at a government central bank, which of course none of us are allowed to have, or if you had cash. Now, um, the challenge for achieving that freedom from default risk was if you're a government, um, there you can simply claim the, the sort of guarantee of the state, the, the, the idea of full faith and credit of the associated sovereign. Well, I didn't have a state behind me, and instead I had to rely on, on the strength of the balance sheet. Now, to do that, like if I obviously, if I, if I was backing the money with, let's say, bank deposits, well, all I was doing was inheriting whatever default risk or, or problems uh, stem from bank deposits and, and going one step even more derivative. That wouldn't have been a satisfactory solution. So taking a cue from government central banks, and in particular from the Fed, like if you look at the, the, at the way the Fed and the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, tabulate and list their reserve assets, there's only four things that they count as uh, offering, you know, the sort of cash-like um, freedom from financial risk that, that would allow them to be classified as a reserve asset. So those four things are their reserve position with the International Monetary Fund, um, their holdings of SDRs, which is a special token that only generates within the IMF. They might have balances at a foreign central bank, or they might have gold. So of the four of those, the only one that was accessible to me, of course, was gold. But it had several advantages to use as a reserve asset anyway, one of them being there was a very well-established existing infrastructure that had been refined over the previous decades and practically a century to meet the needs of government central banks and international gold banks. And that was something called a good delivery system. So it was a system with infrastructure that attended to everything from, you know, how you would know gold was genuine and secure ways of, of housing it. And a very, it was a very low cost type of a thing that I could access hopefully on a, on a wholesale basis. Of course, the other nice thing about it was that people around the world had rather a sort of a long-standing cultural affinity for gold as a store of value. And so it's not like we'd have to convince anybody of the value of the underlying reserves. Now, the fact that we did use gold and it was called e-gold, I mean, this did lead to some confusion because it would cause many people to think that it was some sort of a gold thing, you know, that we were gold bugs or this was some sort of an investment. So we had to take pains to point out, no, this isn't an investment. You know, if, if you're looking to try to speculate on price movements in gold, go do that in the futures market or someplace else. In fact, if you're holding a balance of our money, if anything, it's a, it's a negative investment. It's a wasting asset 
because we assessed an account maintenance fee such that and at that time it was about one percent per annum so it was like paying it was like you know a negative interest type of an account um but anyway i i, I as we talk i'm sorry you'll find that i <laughs> i'm not good at short answers and i might tend to not might tend to ramble so let me pass it back to you for where you want me to focus no that no that's absolutely no problem at all i uh people i think are kind of kind of topically aware of e-gold and uh more so just as, as kind of a, a a bit of a a footnote as far as if you're in the the bitcoin space because it is brought up quite often that um as you know satoshi was releasing this is in the same time frame that a lot of the um uh, legal issues were going on, which we'll, we'll get into and kind of dispel some myths about that. Um, but a lot of people, I think, um, are just don't know the the entire story, and um, you know, think that, or or a lot of us think that uh, one of the reasons that he decided to remain anonymous and uh, and design it in certain ways uh, was specifically because I, I think of what he saw as uh, lessons learned. And um, as far as for the views that uh, state uh, actors will take on on attempts to create alternative currencies to to their own as competition, uh, so I think that this the, the you know your story your life is is a really important uh, piece of history as we you know continue to move forward. So feel free to you know take as much time as as you feel you need to to tell this. Well, I think the linkage, though, that you just raised, it's, it's, I think it's important to focus on that because I would assert that there's an actual cause and effect uh, element that, that's going on here. Like if we go back to the beginning, like the mid 90s, um, it was somewhat similar to the present time in that the cypherpunks at that time were highly regarded and, 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 and the particular thing they were enamored with at that time, of course, was, was eCash um like david chom's anonymous uh, digital cash or or somewhat anonymous um like at, at that time if you you know the, he would you would see it on the on the cover of financial publications or even u.s news and world report or like there was a wired article where his name is cited 50 more than 50 times and everybody believed that time that like financial cryptography and in particular digital cash was was the future of money. When when I conceived of my ideas in 1996, I I disagreed. And in fact, on one of the the forums that was sort of closely allied with the cypherpunks mailing list, one of the lists maintained by Robert Hettinger, I'd even I'd even posted a, a started a thread called debunking eCash, and I made the point there that I that I felt that the world had changed in 1996 that the, the emergence of secure browsers had invalidated a major reason for people to bother with the wallet that was required um, to, to, to use DigiCash. So when I, when I said this, of course, this, this evoked a lot of cypherpunk gnashing of teeth and the usual sort of chorus of, you just don't get it, and, 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 and so forth. But the fact is, Within about 18 months of eGold going online, DigiCash was defunct. 
you know, they were, they were gone, having burned through more than 20 million bucks of other people's money. Now, what ended up happening um, during the entire time that we were operational, which was about 10 to 12 years, depending on, on how you count it, it's not as if these financial cryptography projects went away. There was a continuous succession. There was one after another after another of somebody feeling they had built a better mousetrap. But as long as we were around, nobody cared. You know, they couldn't get any traction. There was zero interest on the part of the public, zero uptake. None of them became commercially viable. In fact, there was, there was an interesting comment I'd seen, uh, like an article, you know, going down the sort of the history of, of all these, of these type of things, where I believe it might've been Edward de Jong who made the comment that like, you know, there was all this activity around DigiCash, but then, you know, around 1996, all of a sudden things went silent as if for the next 10 years, people weren't interested in money anymore. Well, yeah, something did happen in the next 10 years and that was that we were there. Now, the same thing I would assert is a major element in the timing of, of how uh, Nakamoto and so forth, the, you know, the Satoshis did manage to get their foothold. And it's not just me that, that would assert this, like there had been an article from, uh, you know, from John Matonis, who at that time I think was chairman or president of the Bitcoin Foundation. He'd had an article in Forbes called, I think, something like Bitcoin Prevents Monetary Tyranny. And he explicitly sort of pointed out the, the connection of like when we disappeared, that was the thing that sort of set the stage. What I would say happened there, and this is an important point, A, was I think that our disappearance gave them a chance to get a foothold. But more importantly, it also led to what I would call the foundational myth of Bitcoin. Because the, the initial Bitcoin promoters, whether they did not understand the outcome of the, of the Eagle legal case, or whether they chose to purposely misrepresent it, the meme that was sort of used was, aha ha, see what happens to something like this, like what happened with Eagle was that they excited the wrath of the United States government because the US government doesn't want any competition with the almighty dollar. And so they thought they would stomp this guy flat and they put e-gold out of business. The problem with that is that's not what happened at all. Now, I can describe at some length what did happen. And there's a, there was many, many lessons to be learned, but the wrong lesson to learn was Oh, so therefore we need to do something that is robustly defiant of government oversight and regulation. We need to have something that has strong anonymity. No, those were not the lessons to be learned. There were very distinct uh, concrete things that came out of that legal case that, that would have enabled, you know, that would enable a system that was robust and enduring and, <clears throat> and highly acceptable to government. <clears throat> so anyway, so the, this founding myth was that the opposition to e-gold arose out of some sort of government antipathy to monetary competition. The, what I would argue in opposition to that is if you look at the court records, it couldn't have been more explicit that it was not about that. In fact, 
in open court, um, questions had even come up. Like at one point, the judge had explicitly asked the prosecution if they want to, you know, if one of the results of the, of the case was for them to, to shut down Eagold, <clears throat> to which they had to answer, like, no, that's, that was affirmatively not what they were looking for. And in fact, when the case was eventually solved by, or resolved on the basis of a, of a, of a plea agreement, the judge went out of her way to make some very, very remarkable um, type of, of, of statements to, you know, to make it clear, like saying things such as that the system conceptually is, is not illegal. Um, and in fact, if you look at the plea agreement itself, or at the sentencing, or at the sentencing memo, um, here you had a, a, a set of charges where the federal sentencing guidelines for these um, would have called for a period of incarceration of more than a decade and multi-million dollar fines. Instead, the judge uh, opted for a sentence of no incarceration, uh, some you know, um, house arrest with electronic monitoring for six months. But essentially what I was sentenced to do was to continue to run these companies and to bring them back online as licensed and regulated financial institutions. Like she explicitly said, quote, since there is no reason to shut down eGold and GNSR and every reason to have them come into legal compliance, a sentence of incarceration for Dr. Jackson would be counterproductive. I mean, do you see the contrast there between this notion of, oh no, they don't want, they don't want privately issued money versus the fact that like, no, they provided me a blueprint of exactly what I would need to do, you know, to come back online, like they provided finally for the first time, you know, legal clarity of what it would take to operate eGold as a, a licensed financial institution in the United States. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the more important things we can dispel. Well, I, I, I want to go through the, the legal issues a little bit uh, in more detail here, but I was wondering if we could actually roll back just a little bit. And because you talked about uh, the lead up and, and the reasons that you wanted to start Eagle, but can we go back maybe to just the very beginning um, how you how you got started and and how eGold specifically uh, I, I guess worked from you know kind of in the nuts and bolts what were people buying what did they get with their purchase and uh, you know things like the backing and all that kind of stuff and and how you um, basically uh, created this this network of you had a, a digital representation of that asset but you also had physical assets tied to that digital res representation that the customer would have? I mean, how could they use it and, and all these sorts of things? Good. Um, let me just describe sort of like the last question of like, of how somebody would use it. Um, we had a website, somebody would come to the website and they would, um, they would essentially create an account on the system, which um, consisted of providing contact information identifying information, and then um, that gave them the ability, unfortunately, this was, this was a naive thing on our part, like one of our mistakes, that essentially immediately gave them full permissions on the system. 
And when I say full permissions, that means that from that moment on, they had an account that they could, uh, they could receive a payment from somebody else that had some of our money, um, which would settle immediately at very low cost. And when I say low cost, I mean like a worst case cost of about 1%, which dropped off very dramatically on a percentage basis um, you know, as, as the value went up. Um, and so a, like the payment instructions, a push type of a payment, and the, the nature of the instruction would be along the lines of pay so-and-so, you know, your designated recipient, um, a certain, and, and you'd specify the amount of the payment like using conventional monetary units. Like we call this a decoupling of the numeraire. And but what I mean by that is like a typical instruction might be, you know, pay um, Sally 150 US dollars worth of Eagle. What the, what the way the system would interpret that then is we maintained a reference exchange rate since the, the native unit of account for our money was, was weight units to reflect its 100% backing with physical gold. We would then return like, okay, well, if the exchange rate is whatever, like 20 uh, US dollars per gram, um, that means that you wanna send XXX amount of, of grams of e-gold to the recipient. Does that make sense to you? Is this really what you wanna do? And if that made sense, um, if they thought the exchange rate was appropriate, uh, they would commit the transaction and then immediately receive a notification and a unique identifying number that, uh, okay, that, that, that's done, the person's been paid. And then if the payee was to look online, they would see that their balance had been incremented. So like all that happened is it was a book entry ledger-based system where in an atomic transaction, the payer's account balance was decremented and the, and the recipient's account would be incremented. Um, in effect, if, if, like if you're familiar with how government payment infrastructures operate, what we had done was reproduce what's called a RTGS or real-time gross settlement platform, very much like those used by government central banks. Like in the case of the United States Federal Reserve, uh, it's called Fedwire. And about the only difference between how ours worked versus how theirs works was that theirs allows for like the introduction, it allows for overdrafts, whereas ours was on a strict debit basis. So that for instance, if you tried to submit a payment instruction for more money than you had in your account, it would simply fail. You had to have the money to pay the money. So it was a very simple transaction. It was called, we called it a spend to reflect there was a push type payment uh, with advance authorization by the payer um, to, to the designated recipient. Um, now, the way that like the system had come into to being was like the, the, the first generation, I, to, to get it up and running quickly, uh, since I did not have much experience in, I didn't have any experience in, you know, in trying to contract out a development project or develop requirements or, or something, I worked with a developer to do sort of like the web bits and um, you know form submits and so forth, and then just sort of did the back end of it myself. Which <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing that it wasn't worse than it was because I'm I'm not a programmer. I, I sort of just in time learned how to do enough programming to put together sort of the the back end um, um, transaction processing mechanism. Now. The thing that was 
I was not much of a businessman. And so you're never supposed to, um, like your marketing plan is never supposed to be like build it and they will come. Unfortunately, that was my marketing plan. Um, I, I didn't have any sense of, of, you know, how to get the word out. Like this was in the days before social media. Um, like the closest thing to it was these, uh, you know, participatory mailing list type things. In fact, that's the reason I gotten on cypherpunks and some of the other lists was to sort of say like, here I am, here's this thing, please come try it. Um, and we hadn't actually, I had not even heard the terminology use case. And so I only had a vague sense of what people might use it for. I mean, I sort of figured that since it was so much cheaper than a credit card transaction and that it wasn't subject to chargeback risk, that it would be very good for e-commerce. Like it was obvious that if you had an entity such as, you know, like Amazon was starting to become a thing at the time, um, that if, if, you know, with our pricing structure, that it would cost them one third or less the cost of, you know, receiving a credit card payment. So, you know, we sort of thought people would be self-evident to people. The remarkable thing is that people did come. Now, I mean, I did also try like some print ads in 1998, like probably some of the, the dumbest, most impenetrable uh, print ads ever ever done were the ads that I had, had done in, in 1998. But by 1999, like, like even like in spring of 99, the Financial Times correctly noted that it was the only electronic currency to ever uh, achieve critical mass on the web. And then by 2000, an exponential growth was, was becoming apparent, where from February to March, we had a doubling. From March to um, October, we had gone up another tenfold in terms of cumulative transactions processed. And by about November of 2000, we were processing a greater volume and value of transactions every month than a whole cohort of would-be competitors because I should, I should say, when I, when I say this cohort of would-be competitors, this was around the time of the dot-com bubble. And there were tons of people trying to do alternative payment schemes. There was, and, and they were very well financed. Like, you know, I could identify like Beans and Flues and Cybercash and Mondex. And then a little bit later, there was Peppercoin. Of course, there was Digicash. Like between them, they had raised more than 300 million bucks compared to our launch, which was initially on less than a million bucks, most of it out of, you know, out of my own funds. Um, so back to November of 2000, we were processing more per month at that point than all of those would-be competitors had combined cumulatively. That is the entire course of their existence. Um, and so something was, was going right. The thing that was going right related to the network effect. Like when, when, like sometimes when I describe or try to describe the way Eagle worked to economists, they're hung up on the idea that, well, so it's, it's like, it's a foreign currency. So you'd have to sandwich it between these currency exchanges. And they imagine the transaction to be something like, well, you start with dollars and then I'm gonna obtain some of this through a currency exchange transaction. Then I'm gonna transfer it to somebody and then they're gonna exchange it for local currency. And it's like, nope, nope. That's, that wasn't our transaction. Our transaction was a push from somebody that's got the money to somebody that they're sending it to, period, end of story. Now, whether or not there was exchange 
like on the part of the payer, you know, how they obtained it, of course, didn't really matter to the recipients. It'd be just as cheap whether the payer had, you know, like if it had been a, you know, a dear transaction for the payer to acquire it or, or, or however. And so like the point is there was a strong incentive on the part of people <clears throat> that wanted to make payments in this fashion um, to talk to their counterparties uh, on the income side. So that rather than them needing to bear the cost of some sort of currency exchange, instead they could simply receive it at what amounted to the spot rate. The same thing happened on the recipient side, um, where if somebody had uh, incoming e-gold and they didn't want to exchange it for local currency, they would talk to the people on their expense side. Like if it was a business, you know, talk to their employers or, or the employees or talk to their, their vendors and suppliers, or if it was an individual to talk to like the landlord or the, or the neighbors or the grocer down the street or whoever. And it was the customers who were reaching out to, to engage with other customers that was leading to this sort of, a, of an exponential effect. Now, the other thing that was happening that was so remarkable was, although our uptake initially for e-commerce was rather disappointing, uh, what did seem to happen was that people recognized the, the advantages of e-gold for international remittances, like in particular, like for guest worker remittances, because there, there's many countries where people will work abroad um, to generate income in a, in a, in a, you know, a more affluent country, and then a substantial proportion of that will be sent to the family back home. So we first, but you know, anecdotally discovered that this was a pattern um, and, and, it, and it turned into sort of like one of the major drivers for the internationalization. We had customers in virtually every country uh, on, on earth uh, and there was sufficient popularity, like for instance, like we only for the first many years only had an English language website. And so there was a phenomenon that cropped up where you would see people that had translated our website at, you know, on their own nickel into a variety of languages, you know, whether it was, you know, Hindi or, 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 or Chinese or Russian, you, you name it, just to facilitate their efforts to get, you know, like people that they knew to, to sign up for the system. I mean, I don't know if anything like that's ever, ever happened before or since. Now, with this pattern of growth, by 2000, let's say late 2005, early 2006, we'd gotten up to the point where we were processing, um, you know, a transaction volume of, of 3 billion US dollar equivalent per annum. And our gold reserves had reached the point where they'd passed the official reserves backing the, like the Mexican peso or the, uh, or the, or the Canadian dollar. And so, you know, there's this, this pretty substantial uptake of the system. <clears throat> well, that's, you know, and, and throughout this whole time as well, uh, and I think that's, you spoke about that a little bit as, uh, earlier, is that one of the misconceptions um, uh, that, that you see is that, that um, federal and state regulators, specifically federal, were kind of out, out to get you or anything like that, or that uh, perhaps... Um, you guys were playing fast and loose or something along those lines, which was not the case. And from a lot of the reading that I've done in your accounts 
um, that you've published as well as uh, third-hand accounts of, of everything is you guys were working very closely with um, regulators and government agencies to make sure everything was on the up and up um, and that you were, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I. Uh, can well, you... no, we were doing some dumb things, though, too, oh, okay. I'm afraid. You know, like, like the fatal flaw, like in the category of only I knew then what I know now, we should have at the very beginning, or at least as early as possible, changed to this, changed from our wrong-headed notion, like it was too easy to get an account. Um, you know, like we shouldn't, you, you, it's not appropriate to give somebody full permissions on a system all the conventional things that banks do, we didn't really see the point. We thought that the reason banks and so forth did all of that customer you know, identity verification and due diligence and so forth, we thought that was because they have to, because in essence, all remote payment systems that are administered by banks are based on credit. And so they had to know who people were so that they wouldn't be left holding the bag you know, if somebody did something uh, you know, defaulted on some sort of a credit type of obligation. Um, what we didn't understand, like, like the thing that we did do, we did cooperate with law enforcement. Like the very first time that we became aware of somebody doing something that appeared suspicious was in 1999. And so right out of the box, we'd established, you know, like a working relationship with law enforcement. And that grew to include many, many agencies all around the world. Like, for instance, if it was an international law enforcement type of request, rather than you know, necessarily waiting for things to come through government to government channels, you know, we would honor a, you know, a, a request from a lawful request from foreign law enforcement um, you know, very readily. So we worked with you know, like the London Metropolitan Police, I guess you call them Scotland Yard. Um, with, um, you know, with law enforcement aid agencies in the UK, um, in France, Russia, you know, like Egypt, I mean, all, all over the place, uh, Nigeria. Um, and so, yeah, over maybe the first, up by 2005, when we were first sort of attacked by the government, I think we had complied with over a thousand subpoenas, worked, you know, in, in, in cooperation for all all those investigations, and um, and we'd really developed sophisticated mechanisms, you know, for like detection, investigation, interdiction. Like this evolved and evolved and evolved until it became, I think, I could argue that probably the strongest sort of investigative capability of of any payment system. But here's the mistake: what we should have been doing from the very beginning was doing the conventional things of a, a robust universal customer identification program and then doing risk-based due diligence to understand like people's intended usage of the system or especially in the case of a business what the, the you know what the nature of their business was um, and then in the case of certain entities that were higher risk like financial institutions or you name it you know, to do enhanced due diligence, like all the things that are the stock and trade of a, of a robust AML anti-money laundering program, those would have been a great idea. Um, I think we would have probably grown faster. Um, but more importantly, like we learned a great deal about the bad things that people will do. 
and came to realize like it's not enough to catch the bad guys which we were good at but you know taking that knowledge of how people act um you know which enables you to do a good risk assessment um it's possible to to prevent it in the first place and that's really what you need you know for for purposes of, of reputation and so forth um you know we'd still be around and i'm i would dare say the blockchain uh bubble you know the phenomenon probably never would have occurred had we understood that and it seems like a lot of the the issues of we just illustrated as far as for letting people have full permissions and a lot of the lessons that you learned uh, it, it from what i could read of of the story it seems like you had about five years uh of uh, basically kind of uh, relative freedom uh in your growth at the at the federal level but that that kind of 9-11 and the patriot act really kind of changed a lot of that uh given that they reclassified uh different assets and and different ways of of uh, uh operating and who sends what money uh, to or who sends what to whom as as being uh, a money transmitters versus uh, there was a much different uh, um, description of that and uh, regulated aspect of that prior to where you guys really didn't fall or fall under that per se uh, but after 9-11 like many other things that that changed dramatically and as well as how it seems uh, and this could be my my own uh, misunderstanding as well, based on uh, the kind of the collective one you talked about. But it, it seemed like that changed also the perception that at least some agencies looked at eGold and and other folks who were um, operating in, in the same way. Uh, if you could, I don't, I don't know if you mind kind of going over uh, your perceptions of the difference between pre nine eleven and post uh, with your operations. Yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent question. Um, and there were a lot of changes with the US Patriot Act, um, and which included changes to the a very relevant bit of legislate or, you know, very, the, the 18 USC 1960 statute, the one that that's under which, you know, I was charged for operation of an unlicensed money transmitting business. Um, I made the mistake of interpreting the language of it myself and to me it seemed very clear that what they had in mind was money transmitting in sort of you know the spirit of like how a, a traditional remittance or money transmitting business did it like a western union or a money gram type of thing where there's um you know where there's actual cash that's that's being exchanged over the counter um and 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 this type of thing the thing that i that i did not understand um was that it was practically impossible actually to know if you were a money transmitting business in fact i didn't really come to grasp this until after our, about a year after our case was completed that it, that it really sank in um and in fact unbeknownst to us even at the time that we were going through the case um like the, the sort of the leading expert on that law in in treasury had published an analysis of our case which we neither we nor the court were aware of and and pointed out you know a great deal of ambiguity 
in the law, like pointing out that there's four different statutes where you had to try to, you know, piece together how they related to each other, but it was sufficiently iffy that, like, he had concluded that it was impossible for an attorney to, to even a, advise a client as to whether they were in compliance with the law. On the other hand, though, there were um, attorneys that actually worked in this, this field of law for, for clients in businesses that, that might have been so classified. And what was understood there was that, yeah, it is confusing, but a money transmitting business is a subset of a money services business. And money services businesses are, are regulated by the states. There, there's, a, there's a registration at the federal level with FinCEN, but in terms of licensing and, and actual regulation, that's done by the states. And the only way to know if you are a money transmitting business, practically speaking, is to approach every state where you might uh, have customers and get a determination as to whether license is required or not. That was the thing that, oh my goodness, I wish we had known that, but it was also something that sort of came out of the Patriot Act. Now, the actual provisions, um, once they were interpreted by the judge in our case, um, they're not bad provisions. They're, they're pretty common sense. You know, like people think of, oh, these things are so intrusive. And, and yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no doubt that it, it makes the onboarding of customers less convenient for the customer and much more expensive, you know, for the provider. But on the other hand, you know, who on earth wants bad guys in their system? You know, it's, 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 it's poison. Like it's, it's a loser's game. Like, especially in a case like us, where like for several years, we had topped out the transaction fee where it could never go any higher than the equivalent of, uh, I think two bucks. And so it's like, why on earth, you know, would you want to be the, to exposed to the risk of somebody doing something heinous when the, the most you could make from a transaction was two bucks? I mean, it would be, you know, it, it made no sense. Um, so anyway, yeah, Patriot Act, to our detriment, of course, they, they also did jack up the, you know, the, the sort of federal sentencing guidelines for these type of things. And that, that certainly stung us. But with better legal counsel at the time, you know, we would have simply known to, known to comply and to re-engineer the system. And we also had tried to do some of that re-engineering. I mean, as early as 2000, we had developed requirements for what we called the valid user project, which was going to be sort of a federated identity type of a thing where if people were to go through the effort of validating their identity to us to then offer a sort of a reusable thing that they could, you know, use that same validated identity on other sites. Unfortunately, we, we weren't able to marshal the resources to like pull the trigger on that because, you know, like pretty much throughout our entire existence, we were undercapitalized and it, it resulted in, you know, our day-to-day -day existence being kind of like a scramble to, you know, to deal with the mortal threat du jour. And it did make it very hard to set aside money for some of the proactive type of things that we needed to do. So like that valid user thing, it ended up getting shelved. Um, like, cause we, we had three periods where like we, we got an exponential growth in 2000. Then we stumbled, partly because of our tech at the time couldn't handle the throughput. 
and, and transactions began to time out, all kinds of bad things happened, uh, and that caused new potential competitors to appear. So boom, that growth curve was over and things fell back. Then when we you know, sort of stopped stumbling over our own feet, by 2003, it went exponential again, you know, to a higher high that made the first you know, exponential look like a blip. But that was about the time then that um, people uh, victimizing uh, users of online payment systems, that's when they really hit their stride. When, when things like um, phishing or putting up counterfeit sites with similar URLs, like this hit everybody, it hit us, it hit PayPal, and there was sort of a, a, a collapse in trust in, in online payment systems. So a second time, you know, we, we fell back down. And each one of these times it fell, we had to put money into like fixing the technical deficiencies or, or fixing security protocols. Um, but then finally, the third time we went exponential in 2005, I mean, I'm like, goodness, it was, it was, it was, it was awesome. Like the, the exponent for the exponential, or if you looked like a six month sliding sort of figure, the exponent was going up exponentially. I mean, and, and finally we were able to set aside, we, we marshaled the funds for a, you know, a more refined and extended valid user. Uh, we, we, we were on the verge of going to contract with a, with a provider in, in India that was very good at, at uh, you know, like banking software and so forth, where it looked better to, you know, to, to buy than, than to build. Ironically, with the first asset seizure that occurred in December 2005, they, they took the money that we'd finally been able to set aside for that project, which, I don't know, just one of the, one of the ironies of, of the time. <clears throat> but again, I probably have digressed oh. away from your question. No, 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 it's, it's, it's great. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, PayPal and uh, as well as, you know, people doing you know, illegal things, uh, and, you know, also bad, which doesn't necessarily, uh, always overlap, but, um, uh, illegal is never anything that, that you want to be associated with. But, uh, you know, that is one of the reasons that, you know, so many arrows were kind of fired in, in your direction, I think was this concern, especially post nine 11 of, um, people using, uh, you know, alternative payment networks, uh, to be able to move funds. Um, and, you know, this is the same thing that Bitcoin contends with, um, PayPal, any digital value transfer system contends with. And uh, you also mentioned, you know, hacking of, of user systems and, and kind of phishing scams. But this was not anything that was unique to, to eGold. I mean, PayPal and even you see banks paying out uh, billions of dollars in, in fines um, for money laundering and all these kinds of things. But wh why do you think that Eagle got, it seems like a lot more scrutiny, um, or is it just because the ability to lobby and and hire the best legal teams in the country was, was not available to you? Or do you think that you actually had more scrutiny on yourself uh, and Eagle more than, say, PayPal or uh, Deutsche Bank? That's a, another great question. And both aspects applied to considerable degree. Like if you have what amounts to endless uh, investor money, um, you really do get much better treatment both by the media 
you know, you, you've got more professional public relations um, interfaces um, <clears throat> and, and yeah, and the, and the best lawyers. And so, you know, like a company like PayPal, they had burned through 270 million bucks of investor money before they ever went cash flow positive. So yeah, that, that, that helps a great deal in terms of getting the best PR firms. Um, but it's also correct that we had a particular bad relationship with the Secret Service. And I'm, I'm not gonna go into all of the details of this. There's a, a book that should be coming out soon by um, an author named Carl Mullen where he's going to essentially expose what the agenda was of the Secret Service during that time and, and, and evidence that they were working in collusion with a, a cabal, um, a sort of a private cabal representing interest of would-be competitors. Um, I, I guess what I will say about it was during this period, we were working with all sorts of law enforcement agencies. It was it was very it was it was collaborative, you know, where there'd be a learning curve where they would learn how to make use of our in-house investigative capabilities. Uh, we would work with them so that they would learn how to give good subpoena, so to speak. In other words, so that they would know better how to frame the information requests in a fashion that would enable us to give them maximally useful information or ideally to even work on an iterative basis where they provide us with, you know, we provide data, they give us feedback that, and, and refine the, the request. So this was happening with all kinds of agencies with the exception of the Secret Service. From a very early phase, um, possibly as early as 2001, it was obvious that they were different. Um, and this, it was, it was sufficiently different. There was even a topic of discussion you know, that I would get into with other law enforcement agencies. It's sort of like, what's wrong with the Secret Service? Um, now, there, there came one point where it seemed like I was going to have a breakthrough there. Like, it, 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 it had been evident probably for at least two years that there was something wrong in their relationship with us. But there was one point in late 2004 when one of the agents, you know, apparently hadn't gotten the word, didn't know the agenda. Um, and had given us, you know, he'd, he'd gotten in touch with me with a heads up relating to um, a, a particular bit of malware that was being used to target a number of banks, PayPal, and us. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I finally have, you know, a Secret Service guy on the phone who seems interested in fighting crime. Um, and so I told him about how, you know, we, we'd had this odd relationship with the Secret Service and I would love to meet with them to try to, you know, late to, to them, you know, how to work with our investigators. Um, and so we, we set up a thing where I was going to come to DC and, 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 and meet not only with some of the senior secret service people, but they were also going to bring in like uh, legal represent or, or law enforcement representatives from based in DC, from, from the UK, from Australian federal police and so forth. Um, so, and then I also had invited, um, knowing this was going to happen, there was a particular DOJ attorney who had published something where I felt it was very misinformed um, that I wanted to bring in the loop also, so to get understand, you know, more realistically what we were all about, what our capabilities were. 
So this was all scheduled up. Um, but then I guess what happened when the guy went to walk through a travel voucher, <laughs> you know, to pay for my trip to DC, it got squelched, you know, like the, in, in essence, like whoever was supposed to authorize the travel voucher, you know, said like, what? We don't talk to Eagle. They're the bad guys. And it's like, huh? And, but, and it was gone. Now I ended up going to DC anyway, in January of 2005, you know, at the time originally scheduled for the meeting and I was turned away at the door. You know, it's like, hello, you know, can you meet with me anyway? And no, you know, so yeah, the secret service was, was pretty bizarre, you know, um, and I, I, you know, I commiserated on this, like for instance, with people from, I remember specifically discussing it with the head of the Australian high tech crime center, uh, talking about it with the, the Russian interior ministry, um, uh, department, Q, I think it was department Q, um, yeah, there, uh, and, and with, with other law enforcement agencies. And the, the sort of view that I was getting back from them was that the Secret Service was kind of dysfunctional, you know, that they didn't like to work with them either. Um, that they would do things like if they got wind of a case that some other agency was doing, they might swoop in and make premature arrests, even if it destroyed, you know, like a long running operation that was designed to try to get to you know, like the higher ups and some sort of thing. Like there was a New York Times article where, you know, uh, a, a law enforcement agent for another agency described how they would swoop in and, and pop the low, you know, get the low hanging fruit that was easy to pop, even if it ended up messing up an investigation. So yeah, there's a lot more that's known about how this sort of relationship between what I call a cabal and the Secret Service came into being. Um, and it's, it's I, you know, like when this is eventually understood, I, I, I think the wrong people got a bad reputation out of this. Namely us. Yeah, no. Uh, and, you know, so, it, it's, so you're in the middle of this investigation the secret service is not being at all helpful um in you trying to do the right thing and what that you would expect that they would want you to do um and you had basically experienced um you know i guess you could say on nearly a, a decade of of working through this case if if i'm not uh, mistaken as far as for you know cuz as TV seems to really kind of misrepresent this because you get the, you have the criminal investigation, you have uh, the prosecutors talking to the cops, and then it seems like uh, within a few days, you know, everything's presented, and and that's just not how uh, real cases go. You know, they have you have a hearing, and then you might have you know months or um, even longer in between um, the the next hearing to to continue the process. How long exactly was this process? And how did it uh, evolve over time to the point where it was basically um, done, finalized, and and uh, and behind you? Okay, the the first shot was fired, so to speak, in late December two thousand five. Like the first time that we learned that anyone had a beef with us was um, when the Secret Service served a search warrant um, on on our office on my home and on the uh, co-location facility 
where the, the, the primary servers were, were located. That ended up taking the system offline for something like 18 hours because they had no idea, you know, that we had terabytes of data. They didn't know that we kept a permanent record of all transactions dating back to, you know, 1996. Um, and that was accompanied then, we discovered a few days later, by a uh, uh, seizure of all the balances of our affiliated exchange service, uh, which was called OmniPay. Um, now, Norm, okay, so that was the first event. Because it was such an unusual event, like it, it turns out that the judge who had granted the, the search warrant or the seizure warrant, uh, the magistrate judge, had grave concerns that something was fishy about the request. And so we had sought to get an emergency hearing before that judge, which happened like a, just a couple of days later. Um, and it's, it's rather remarkable hearing, like there's a transcript of it available online where, you know, he sort of like with very early on in, in, the, in the proceeding says like, I was afraid this day would come. You know, I thought there was something fishy about this request. In fact, it sounded so fishy that I, you know, like the, the allegations of probable cause that I insisted that blah, 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 come back and give it to me in writing. But then he came back and gave it to me in writing and I, I put it in an envelope and it's under seal. And so, you know, and he, he made it sound like you guys were like running a child pornography ring or, or that you were operating, you know, like clandestinely. And, and then it turns out, you know, like you've actually approached you know, a regulator like seeking a determination as to, you know, how you should be regulated, like everything that they said was a lie. And he was really angry and was inclined, you know, to just give us our money back, you know, right away. Unfortunately, he also didn't think he had the power to do that. And our attorneys representing us at that point weren't fast enough on their feet to give the argument of, oh, yes, you do have the power. Every judge has the power to undo whatever they can, whatever they've done in the first place. So what happened then, okay, if you don't know much about like asset seizures, it's a two-stage type of thing. First, they take all of your stuff um, and you can't really do anything about it until a, a forfeiture case is filed. And so the forfeiture case um, is the thing that would allow them to keep it. And it's when you're allowed to contest it. But it's not like a criminal charge. Like with criminal charges, there's this notion, at least, of, of, of innocent until proven guilty. Forfeiture law doesn't work that way. It dates back to admiralty law from like the, you know, the realm of, of Queen Anne hundreds of years ago, where the idea was if they can seize it on the high seas, the burden of proof is on the, the person that it was taken from to prove that it's that it's like innocent. Um, now, normally there's a space of several months between the seizure and then the subsequent filing of a forfeiture action. In this case, though, since it appeared that the judge, as soon as he got his wits about him, was going to give our money back, um, they filed the forfeiture action that night. So that money was gone. Um, uh, so then, for about the next year. And this is where bad legal advice came in and so forth. The appropriate response, had we only known, 
was despite the fact of being falsely accused of being smeared in the press, you know, um, the appropriate response that a, a normal financial institution does when that occurs is to approach the government and say, oh, you're right, we're terrible, oh my gosh, oh, we're, and, and to, you know, to sort of tug on the forelock and to say, what can we do, you know, to make this go away? And that's when you then negotiate a, uh, a deferred prosecution agreement. Well, we didn't know that. You know, we thought since they had lied and since they were the bad guys that we should vigorously defend it. And that like, you know, that ha ha ha, weren't they gonna be embarrassed? You know, when they realize, you know, that they were duped into doing this thing in the first place. But that's not really how the system works. Um, so over the next year, 2006, a grand jury was convened. And again, stupidly, we thought, ha, 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 boy, they're going to get their comeuppance now because they're going to have witnesses that, that, that clue them in, you know, that, you know, rather than us being some shadowy organization, you know, we're one of the more effective crime-fighting entities out there. But that's not how a grand jury works either. And so to our surprise, which shouldn't have been to our surprise, but to our surprise, about a year after the initial asset seizure, let's say it's December 2006 at this point. And by the way, during that year, we ended up having our most profitable year. Like the public, you know, they didn't have any question that we were still good guys. You know, like that was our highest volume transaction year. Like, oh, these guys had an asset seizure. Well, that's all right. Bad government, good guys. And, and, and business continued. But, you know, a year into it, December 2006, we're summoned to DC. And we're, we're basically informed, no, we're, we're going to go ahead and indict you. And, and here's what the indictment's going to look at, look, going to look like. So we reviewed the indictment and it, it didn't make any sense. Like it described, you know, it, it described bad behaviors, crimes on the part of, you know, a number of the customers. Although every one of the crimes that have been described on the part of the customers, our investigators had already found. I mean, like the reason that they were able to find the bad stuff was because our investigators had intervened and flagged it and so forth, you know, but it's like, okay, so you're charging us with a crime and the crime is that our customers did crimes, which, which didn't make any sense. Um, and also the indictment specified that they would be seeking to put me in prison for many years. And so um, the response at that point was, like some senior guy who'd been sitting in the room at that point, um, who later went on to become the inspector general for the Department of Homeland Security, um, he sort of intervened and says like, oh yeah, you're right. We know that you're not bad guys and we can take this back to the drawing board and nobody's, nobody's gonna go to jail. So I thought, oh great, huh, finally it's over. Somebody, you know, a grown up was in the room and, and there's gonna be some sense to this thing. Um, but then about six weeks later, they come back and 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 basically no nothing had changed the, the indictment they they indicated they they were let me think how the I think we got the word that they weren't planning to change anything and when we kind of our lawyers were like why what's going on you you said this that and the other um, the response was it's out of my hands this comes down from the highest levels so apparently at that point DOJ was deciding to close ranks. Um, you know, with their rather rogue law enforcement agency. Well, then we forgot about it again. But then the next step, you know, so we'd had a, an asset seizure December 15. 
uh, December 05, I'm sorry, December 05. Um, then in April 2007, that's when two things happened. There are three things. We were indicted. Um, there was an additional massive um, asset seizure. Um, and there was also a post-indictment restraining order or pyro that was put out. Now, the first asset seizure had simply taken all the money from the US bank accounts of our affiliated um, exchange service. And that was crippling, but we survived it. The second one was they took all of the e-gold uh, of both the, the entity that was the issuer of e-gold, e-gold limited, and also of the exchange service, a much you know, greater quantity of, of value, in addition to seizing the balances of the largest currency exchangers who made a market between e-gold and, and conventional money. Now, we had to execute, <laughs> it's kind of weird, we had to execute the, this seizure on ourselves. You know, so like, here were the bad guys who are being deputized to seize our own e-gold and also the e-gold, but it was about all together, it was maybe 20 million bucks worth of e-gold that was seized. Moreover, we were required to, rather than turning it over in the form of e-gold, to, um, to exchange it for US dollars and to give them the US dollar amount. So, you know, we're also being deputized to perform, you know, a pretty massive currency exchange operation. So all of this we did. Um, and from then on, then, it was a matter of a, a criminal defense. Um, as the criminal case got underway, our goal was to try to bring evidence into court to sort of bring the judge up to speed as to the facts of the case. Now, let, let me sort of give you a little background on how the legal system works. There's two phases of a criminal case. There's sort of like what you could call the motions phase or the motions practice, where there's a whole lot of paper going back and forth, motions being filed by, by the parties. But there's no evidence. There's no facts. There's no possibility to, you know, to like to have a evidence introduced that's then subject to things like cross-examination or, or any of that sort of thing. So our goal was to try to get an evidentiary hearing you know, on the logic that if the judge understood the facts of the matter, like she'd see things in a different light. Um, their goal was to prevent that. Um, the judge ruled in their favor that we would not get an evidentiary hearing. We appealed that. Um, the appeals court came back in our favor, indicating, you know, on the grounds of due process, that we were entitled to an evidentiary hearing. However, um, in the interim, the judge had been pressuring us to file a motion to dismiss. And I shouldn't go into all this detail, but it's, I mean, it's all, it's, it's hard to understand why things turned out they did if, without knowing these details. We'd been pressured to file a motion to dismiss, which is a routine thing that happens fairly early in all these sort of legal cases. Um, and so we had, we had filed it, you know, based on, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot to say about a motion to dismiss. Um, and it's important, but the gist of it is this motion to dismiss was outstanding 
um, and it had not been ruled on at the time that the appeals court said that we were entitled to an evidentiary hearing. So immediately upon learning that the appeals court was going to, you know, remand us back for, you know, to get our hearing, she instead ruled on the motion to dismiss, rejecting it. And the, the nature of the ruling, like the accompanying memorandum, was so prejudicial, you know, potentially to the outcome of the case, that we had no choice but to get into plea negotiations at that point. Like, I guess, I'll, let me try to clarify this, although I'm probably, anyone that's listening to this, I'm surely putting them to sleep. A motion to dismiss is something that many people aren't familiar with. It's, a, it's almost like a strange stylized dance, like a minuet or something, where the logic of it is that it has to be based on assumed facts. In other words, it takes the, the allegations of the criminal complaint that were part of the indictment, and, and those are assumed to be true. And so the motion to dismiss must take the form of, even if all of those assumed, you know, assuming all those things to be true, even then the, the, the charge, it doesn't constitute an actual, you know, a, a valid charge like you have failed to outline a crime. So that was sort of the, the nature of, of, of our motion. Um, so anyway, when the, the, the rejection of it was, was sufficiently vehement that our concern was, let's say that you get into a trial situation where you now need to argue that, well, you know, actually those assumed facts that were in the statement of offense they're not correct. Like, here's the actual situation. Here's the thing, the way things really are. Like, it misrepresented the, the nature, you know, like the business operations and the structure, you know, the institutional arrangements, the transaction model. It represented fundamental things, you know, that are important to understand about the company. The risk is that having already ruled in that fashion, that the judge might not entertain, you know, that argument and would simply, you know, like, essentially not allow you to introduce the appropriate evidence at, at that time. So between that risk and then there's another risk that we became aware of at the time. And, and between these two things, this is why everybody pleads guilty, you know, in the United States and most other countries, well, around the world and throughout history. Um, in the U.S., the reason everybody pleads guilty is a combination of two factors. Um, I think I mentioned that the federal sentencing guidelines, especially since the U.S. Patriot Act, but even outside of that, tend to be so draconian, so life-ruining, that you would have to be kind of crazy, you know, to, to take your chances um, in court, you know, because your life is over if you lose. But then that's paired with another thing that hardly anybody knows about, and it's called the doctrine of relevant conduct. The doctrine of relevant conduct was something that was originally done for, you know, like if you had an organized or organized crime ring or somebody where like an Al Capone type, you know, where everybody knows that, you know, he might have murdered people, but everyone's afraid to come forward and testify on that. But you finally managed to get him, you know, for spitting on the sidewalk. Well, if he's convicted on any charge, you could then sentence him 
as if he'd been found guilty on all of the charges. And so it's for that reason that everyone's charged with multiple things, and in particular, in the case of a white collar crime, um, everybody gets some sort of a money laundering charge thrown in. Um, now, the, so the risk is, let's, like, let's say, for instance, you have a half dozen charges against you. The jury looks at us like, oh, they throw them all out, but then they, they feel like, oh, well, that, that poor prosecutor, like, I hate to send her home empty-handed. She seems so nice. Maybe we could find them guilty of this one little arcane-sounding licensing thing that, I, you know, doesn't even sound like a crime. I mean, that couldn't hurt these nice defendants too much, and it would at least, you know, you know, help to, you know, give, give the prosecutor a little something for all her efforts. If that were to occur, you can then be charged, you know, as if all, as if you've been found guilty of all the crimes. So for that reason, nobody, you know, unless they've got nothing to lose, you know, is, is going to, to go into the phase where there's evidence and where you, where the thing of like guilty or innocent until proven guilty, you know, that's when that would finally kick in. <sighs> I thought it was kind of worthwhile to maybe go into that to sort of explain because people don't understand, and of course, TV and cop shows don't help in this either. But the fundamental question is like, well, if you didn't do anything wrong, why'd you plead guilty? And that's why when people haven't done anything wrong, they plead guilty, just like, you know, in the show trials in, in Soviet, you know, in Stalin times, everybody pleads guilty, you know, where you think like, well, why didn't they stand up in court and say, my my confession was coerced, or they threatened to kill my family, or whatever. It's just structured in a way where it's it's the fix is in, and you're going to do what they want. Well, I wanted to ask you. I mean, do do you mind getting uh, a little a little personal at all, or no? It's fair game. Whatever you whatever you. I mean, if it if it's something too uncomfortable. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, no. I, I was just wondering how this affected you, you know, personally and, you know, in, in terms of, you know, family or, you know, your peers from uh, your previous career uh, as an oncologist. And I, I guess, you know, the reputational risk, um, because I imagine having your home and business, you know, searched under a warrant would be extremely jarring, you know, and the, the threats that are being thrown around as far as for the maximum of sentencing, if it, if they decide to push for that, you know, would cause a lot of anxiety in most people, not to mention, you know, the, the, the obligations uh, of the business and, and the feelings of obligations towards investors and, and, and trying to, you know, do the right thing throughout all this. I, I imagine it's just an immense amount of stress and especially, you know, uh, it, this is not a two weeks and now it's over. We can put it behind us and laugh about it later. This is something that is just kind of this cloud that's following you for years. Well, I mean, there, there's certainly the personally distressing aspects. I mean, there's no question like that marriage ended about a, a year later. I've been married for 31 years and, you know, it that surely was a factor uh, there. But the bigger thing was I still had what I regarded as a duty to, you know, to create this beneficial system. But in the meanwhile, you know, I had a lot of customers where their money was tied up with us, you know, so the, the, so, the, so what basically what happened next was, well, at least we now had a blueprint for how we could get back into business. What we didn't understand 
was there was a catch-22 that um, the fact that we had pled guilty made us unlicensable. So, you know, I'm basically sentenced, go get a license and resume operations. But the fact that I'd pled guilty made us unlicensable. So it then became an urgent thing of, well, let's unwind the whole system and, and give value back to people. Um, you know, like, I guess we would have to liquidate the gold reserves and pay people out in dollars. Well, then we were advised by council that, no, you can't give people their money back. If you give people their money back, you will have violated the terms of, of your parole and engaged again in unlawful operation of a money transmitting business. So then we get into this pickle of, okay, we can't resume operations and we're not allowed to give people their money back. So what we did was we approached, we, we, we had no recourse but to reapproach the government and say, hey, you got us into this mess we now need for you to be, you know, the middleman, you know, to, you know, you be the middleman that disperses this money back to our customers. Well, that process turned into another travesty because um, here, here's the problem. Approaching the DOJ, you know, where we think we're just going to deal with them as, as the middleman, from their standpoint, they're working for their client. So they re-engage the Secret Service as their client. And now there's a conflict of interest where, you know, we want, like if, we, if we're just doing things in our normal course of business, within about two weeks, the whole thing could have been unwound, everybody would have had their money, and, and that would have been that. But instead, by needing to go through them, it had to be this carefully negotiated agreement. And the conflict of interest was, that if any of the money ends up going unclaimed, um, then the Secret Service gets what's ever left over. So it becomes extremely in their interest to have the smallest possible amount played at, paid out to claimants. So the first tactic was it took years and millions to both negotiate the agreement and to also establish the protocol, you know, by which uh, claimants would be contacted, validated, and, 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 and the process would proceed. Like every step of it had to be like laid out in excruciating detail because, you know, we've basically, the gingerbread man, you know, just agreed to ride across the river on the fox's snout. So the process ended up taking more than three years. And, and of course, costing us several million. Now, under the letter agreement that we negotiated, we were entitled, you know, to be reimbursed those costs. So, you know, we spent all the money that we had and then some, you know, like we get to the situation where we, you know, we're owing our lawyers, you know, oh my gosh, like maybe a million, million and a half or something. Um, but so, the, the upshot of what happened there was it basically gave them another crack at the money or another crack at the money because like they had failed like our institutional arrangements to try to safeguard the integrity of the system were designed you know so that like an attack on the company or malfeasance on the part of somebody within the company like none of these things could you know could disrupt the fact that the gold was held in trust 
for the exclusive benefit of the money holders. Um, and they had tried to crack that, like they tried preemptively to just take the gold, that failed, like all that withstood, like at the end of the case, you know, we were, we were still around and, and, and the e-gold was still out there and the reserves backing it were still there. Well, this, this was a matter of frustration and was infuriating to the Secret Service. So here they get a second bite at the apple. So the, the thing that's negotiated is that, oh, well, they're going to contact potential claimants. So about three years goes by, they engage their, their sort of uh, consultant to do it, who then you know, undertakes to reach out to, to the customers. Now, this is a period of time, this is like between 2010, 2013, when a lot of things are changing you know, in the world. This is about the time when people you know, going from landlines the rest of the way to just using cell phones was completed. But there's also people that move, there's people that die. Um, there's certainly people that change their email address. So, you know, the longer you can wait, the more stale and unusable the contact information is. Plus, especially the mechanism that was used, you know, was to send out a notification through, which was, you know, sent out through the postal system. Um, but it was at a period where if somebody had moved, like, you know, long, for forwarding would have long since expired and so forth. Um, then we, we, so we were, we were seeing as we got down close to the end of the claims window that, um, you know, a substantial number of people that had significant value in the system, you know, had not completed the process to claim their value. You know, so like a little bit late, like with maybe only two or three months to go in the process, you know, we, we had this emergency process to, you know, to try to reach out ourselves to make sure that people knew about this. And invariably, like, no, they hadn't heard a thing. They hadn't had any notification. Um, you know, so anyway, like there was this roughly, they, they, the, the Secret Service got a, a windfall out of this at the end of the day of probably 50 million bucks. And, you know, it was, it was due to the, now, for the, the, the claimants that did hear about it and, and, you know, successfully filed their claim, this was another thing that was sort of unheard of. Like, this is at the time when the financial crisis had been going on. And, you know, the government is spending untold billions to prop up the banking system. At the same time, they're spending millions, you know, to shut us down. But then finally, our claimants, when they received, you know, some, some money, the dollar amount that they received in the worst case was a two-bagger, you know, compared to the equivalent value they would have had at the time the system shut down. In other words, we were, we were gone for, at that point, about, well, essentially from 2008 to 2013. We've been gone five years. But in the meanwhile, eGold had continued to appreciate more than double. You know, so the claimants, if you looked at, like, when's the last time they had access to their account, they got anywhere from a 2x to a 5x <laughs> gain, you know, on, on the value that they'd entrusted to us, which is just kind of strange, you know, since with banks, the challenge would be for them to get pennies on the dollar. In some cases with our customers, they were getting the equivalent of 500 cents on the dollar. Um, so that took quite a bit of time and anguish and resources. And it, and it kind of also destroyed us because when the time came to finally be reimbursed, 
um, for our out-of-pocket expenses and to do things like pay, pay the attorneys and so forth, we were shortchanged four million bucks. And we were ruined. I mean, I've been pretty much impoverished, not, not impoverished, but but you know, lacking not doing not doing well financially, you know, because we, we couldn't afford to lose that. However, the other than major effort that we had been doing concurrent with that was since we knew we would be offline you know, for an extended period of time. And since we now had a blueprint for what it would take to do this on a, on a compliant basis, we went back and we re-engineered the system from the ground up. And there was essentially two major elements. One was to take advantage of new developments in terms of massive scalability. Because a revolution had taken place during sort of the mid, you know, like, like from around 2005 to 2000, 12, um, you know, by the by entities such as Amazon and so forth, that would give them the capability, if need be, of handling every transaction of every person in the world, you know, if, if there was if there was a need for it. So we wanted to redo the tech to basically implement those same sort of um, elements, but to also integrate, you know, a very well-conceived um, any money laundering and, and also other compliance elements like complaint handling and, and, and so forth um, into the system. So yeah, we, re we rebuilt it from the ground up, taking advantage of all the lessons learned. Since we weren't allowed to operate it, we, when we still had money, we had subsidized the formation of a third party uh, that we were going to license the IP to and then, and then eventually sell it outright, conditional on them raising adequate capital. So on our nickel, that company was formed and organized and also uh, undertook to you know, get the, the, the legal clearances. And so this successor to eGold with the exact same business model, the same institutional arrangements, that was knowing you know, that where the regulators knew it had been designed by the same people and financed by us, well, it ended up getting, you know, either licenses or, dec or determinations that license was not required in 36 U.S. states. Um, but before they could get out of like their most basic alpha, it was clear that they'd failed to raise enough money and we had to pull the plug on that. Um, so what I've done since that time is I've, I've witnessed what I regard as a lost decade you know, of unprecedented malinvestment in, and rampant criminality. But what I'm trying to do is to now, you know, organize a successor using a lot of the IP that was developed for that intermediary, um, but with, with additional refinements um, and, and, to, and to still, you know, relaunch the successor system. So it's a matter of recapitalization, restructuring and relaunch. So that's, that's where all my efforts go. So although this has been something where we've been looking towards the past of like Eagle was this, this quaint thing from decades ago, in fact, I regard it will, will be the future. And it's my personal expectation that, you know, if we can marshal the appropriate capital that's needed, you know, to stand this thing up and, and become operational and to get the regulatory approvals in the various national jurisdictions that we have in mind, I quite frankly think we're going to shut down 
you know, the blockchain and DLT thing like we did the first time. Um, you know, because fundamentally, people think that there's been a lot of progress, you know, with, with all this frenzied attention with these, you know, more than 6,000 cryptocurrencies that are out there with these more than 200,000 ERC tokens that are circulating on the Ethereum platform. I disagree. I think it's been a huge step in the wrong direction, a huge step away from efficiency, you know, from appropriate scalability, from, from appropriate cost structures. And it's because it began with the wrong premises. You know, it began with this premise, just like the cypherpunks in the 1990s, of, oh, here's this really clever technical gimmick. Why, that's obviously good. Now let's backfill to come up with some rationale for it. And just as that was the case in the, in the Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, his initial disclosure of Bitcoin, you know, where it was like this, uh, you know, where, I mean, we could talk about like the only sort of, you know, um, use case or need that he even bothered to describe was ridiculous. But since that time, you know, there's been all this effort on the part of this community to first, you know, move away from actual blockchain. You know, so you've got all these companies that raised money under the auspices of, oh, yeah, we're a blockchain play that, you know, know that if they want to have anything decent, they've got to like stop doing the blocks, stop doing the cypher blockchaining, you know, like, and so there's been this migration towards the private networks and distributed ledger technology and so forth. But even then, having started in the wrong place with the wrong premises, they can't evolve away from it. Like they're still stuck with the other ludicrous, you know, meme of the whole notion which is this, this idea of you don't want to have a centralized thing um, and you need to have some sort of a consensus model. And it's that, that consensus thing that I think is possibly the fundamental conceit, you know, that will make it easy to kind of like shut the whole thing down if we can come online with something that's coherent and systematic and that solves the problems that need to be solved. And how close do you think that you are actually to be able to relaunch this, um, the new e-gold? It's, it's pretty much a matter of capital. Like while we're working on the capital raise, we're doing the, the other critical bit as it relates to lining up um, what you think of as, as, as ecosystem partners and also getting a, an appropriate understanding with central banks and regulators in, 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 in the target jurisdictions. Um, and so, you know, we, would con we continue to make progress in those areas, but to make the mayor run, you know, I need, to raise, I need to raise money. And the challenge, you know, with that has been twofold. You know, there's been the fact of, well, it's, it is off-putting to people to see that I'm a convicted felon. I mean, you know, and, but there's also, there's been this ubiquitous belief in what I call, you know, the cool kids, new clothes, you know, like there's this, this, this combination of thinking like, well, if all of these smart people, you know, savvy venture firms and everybody else think that this is the future, who am I, you know, to think that there must be, that, that the naysayer might be correct. You know, nobody would possibly trust their own judgment, you know, for the guy who says, nope, they're all doing it wrong this is how you do it right, you know, that takes a lot of confidence on somebody's part to go against the crowd, you know, because then you, you run the risk of the just like, ha, 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 you just don't get it. 
you just don't understand the beauty and perfection and sublimity of, of, of blockchain and so forth. Although I'm perceiving that there's sort of a sea change that's happening right now. Um, you know, like I've had, like for instance, that the, the debunking blockchain paper that I, I sent you a copy of, I'm getting more and more like confessions from really tech savvy people of like, you know, I can't disagree with you there. Um, <laughs> and there's almost like a, there's a positive correlation where it's like the more knowledgeable somebody is on the software engineering and the network architectures, you know, where they like, they're more likely to say, you know, to, to agree that like, no, I, I, I can't disagree with, with your, with your critique of, you know, the non, you know, the, the lack of viability of, of these schemes. Well, I will, um, I, I will post that paper. I'll let the listeners, um, you know, read and digest and and make that uh decision for themselves as as far as and and um uh, on top of that as well how how can people get a hold of you or kind of follow what you're doing um to be able to engage with you perhaps if if they wish to uh, uh try and attempt to change your mind we're sort of in <laughs> stealth mode like okay. i'd be happy to engage with a potential investor but the like the reason we don't have up a website and why I haven't updated like my, my bettermoney.com blog in probably four years is that I don't want to give away what amounts to secret sauce because there are like the secret sauce relates to primarily our integration with the existing financial system. There are some very, very interesting new developments that sort of extend the capabilities of the first generation system, which was strictly P2P, RTGS, and external to the banking system, there's some interesting new elements. Now, I, so I guess if somebody wanted to get in touch, you know, like if you go to globalstandard.money, I think we just have a redirect on that that takes you over to the old bettermoney.com blog. But then the bettermoney.com blog does have contact information. Um, I will say, and I'm, I'm sort of, you know, like, I'm lazy. And so you probably noticed if you glance through that debunking paper, although it's about maybe 50, the first 50 pages of it, I suppose, are pretty close to production quality. Um, I never finished it. And my excuse for not finishing it, but actually my real rationale was I, I, was, I was getting into this, what I regarded as the solution. And again, I'm sort of afraid to go into too much detail. Um, I mean, many of these elements have been hidden in plain sight now for 15 or 20 years, which I'll, I'll just make one quick comment there. And I'm sorry, I've probably overstepped. We're, this has gone on way too long, I suppose. But No, no, not at all. There is one point to make. Like a, a funny thing is there are people that have tried or think they have replicated or duplicated what Eagle did. Like there's this whole genre, for instance, of people who like, oh, let's put gold on the blockchain kind of thing, where it's like, but even before that, like there was, you know, would-be competitors to eGold that even after they had driven us from the market, nobody was ever able to attract um, usage as a payment system, like none of these gold ones. Um, and so it, it is kind of strange that like, even though we have 
we haven't been shy about disclosing some of our principles. It has kind of remained hidden in plain sight. And, and so like another phenomenon of that right now is, is this, there's this fingernails on the chalkboard term that when I hear it, it just cringe of stable coins where there's, there's so many memes that are sort of wrapped up in the premises of, of, of anyone that would regard stable coin as like a positive of name. But anyway, like there's people that would think, oh, well, wasn't e-gold like a stable coin? And I'm, I'm here to say, no. You know, like there's anything that goes by that name contains at least three structural elements that essentially assure, you know, that it will never be adopted as a, you know, a, a large scale payment system for routine use. Um, and probably none of the companies are going to be commercially viable. You know, like all of them, to my knowledge, are with the exception of, of Tether, which has its own sort of unique uh, characteristics. Um, I don't think the other stable coins are ever going to turn into sustainable business models. But anyway, that's, that's another topic. <laughs> it's on my mind though, because I was just writing a paper yesterday at the, at the behest of one of the international financial institutions, you know, to sort of lay out how we differ from a stable coin. <laughs> ah, sorry for that postscript. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. I I really appreciate your time and and uh, you know giving everybody just kind of a, a really good in depth overview of of e gold and everything that you went through. Uh, I'm glad that you know everything turned out uh, uh, well. I mean, to uh, in terms of you are you know you're free and uh, and you're you know living a good life and and not uh, not you know. In, in prison or anything like that so you know to into that extent it, it did turn out uh, it did turn out well and I'm glad to, to hear as well that you're that you're working on um, a a new uh, generation of e-gold and uh, we, we hope to talk to you soon thank you again well I really appreciate that and and I also appreciate your patience and your excellent questions thanks so much.